guy named Ned Landau, and he, he told about how he had a piece of artwork on his home, a really weird picture, and what he said about it was this, was that it was, a, it was a picture of a woman that was passed out. Jesse, go ahead and show that picture on there, my friend. It was a picture of a woman that was passed out, two men trying to revive her. And, and he said this, he said, as a kid, I, I thought, why on earth do we have this painting in our dining room? He said, it, it had varnish that had cracked, it had paint loss, it wasn't a beautiful painting, and the people in the picture weren't beautiful people. It was remarkably unremarkable. And you look at it, it's not exactly eye candy, they're not exactly good looking folks, are there? Like it's weird subject material. Why would anyone paint that? And why would anyone put that up on their walls? What happened was, this was a painting that had hung in his mother's home. She had gotten it from her parents. And then the mother died in 2010, and so the mother dies. And it's like some people, you know, have to deal with selling the mom and dad's stuff. And so they would take things to Goodwill or have an estate sale, and they're just left over with a few things that they had to get rid of. And so they thought, well, this painting has been in the family for a number of generations here. We'll hang on to it. They throw it in a box under the ping pong table and just forget about it until one year they moved the ping pong table and saw this painting and thought, you know, maybe, maybe it's worth just a, you know, a couple bucks. And so they took it to an auction house hoping to get two or three hundred dollars. And in minutes, it was up to eight hundred dollars. Like that must have been quite a moment for them. And then a European bidder put it up to five thousand dollars. And then there was a bidding war between a German and a French bidder. And it went on for hours and it eventually landed at $1.1 million. The German who was successful at getting it, anonymous buyer, said this. He says, it was a Rembrandt. It was a Rembrandt. I've been looking for this painting my entire professional adult career. And it surfaces under a ping pong table in New Jersey, of all places. The experts knew that it, Rembrandt had painted it. It was, a, it was a part of a series. It was a part of a series. Uh, there's three other paintings in this series. They had found the other three, but they hadn't found this one. This painting that the buyer bought for $1.1 million, he turned around and sold it for $4 million. It's small, but it was Rembrandt, one of the most famous painters from Holland ever. He was only 18 when he painted it. It was a part of this series. Grandma and Grandpa had bought it in their 20s or 30s for 50 or 100 bucks. Nobody had an idea that they had a Rembrandt on their hands. But in the upper right-hand corner had his initials, so they knew that it was him that had painted it. It was a forgotten masterpiece, a forgotten masterpiece, right under their noses. They had missed it. It was this weird picture. The subject material is not even all of that inspiring. The object of the painting wasn't all that beautiful, but what made it worth something? The person who painted it, this forgotten masterpiece right under their noses, and that's part of what we're going to talk about here this morning. We're in a series called This Explains It All. Really, we said it last week as we started the series, it's about embracing some of life's most difficult questions. Questions that often emerge when we start asking ourselves, where did everything come from? Where did we come from? Something that scholars call cosmology, the study of origins. What we said is that the human experience often makes us ask questions, hard questions about life that our human experience can't end up answering because when we start asking questions about what happened you know, in the beginning, like where did I come from, the problem is none of us were there. Like none of us were there, were we? We can't observe it. We can't 
we can't say what happened. And so there's this gap between what I know and what I want to know. And each of us, all of us, fill that gap with faith, somehow, faith. And you say, well, I don't believe in that. I believe in science. But listen, science, especially the scientific method, is, is limited to what can be observed, what can be measured, what can be repeated. But no one was there when it actually happened. In the beginning, man, you just have to take someone's word for it. It takes, as George Michael says, you've got to have faith. We're in the book of Genesis. It shouldn't be a surprise because we're, as Christians, we would say we want to develop our worldview, how we understand these things by what God's word has to say. Last week, we started in the book of Genesis. Genesis literally means origins or beginnings. And you can turn in your Bible. It's page one. It's pretty easy to find. That's where we'll start. But it's the story of Moses describing to the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, as they were coming out of slavery, as they were wandering around the wilderness, hey, this is what you need to know about your God and how your God is not the same as the gods of the Egyptians, not the same of the gods as the Chaldeans and the Mesopotamians. See, for, those, for them, their worldview was this, that according to the Egyptians, the God of the Egyptians, Adam was his name, he came out of the sea, came out of there, and yet... Moses says, in the beginning, God was over it. He didn't come out of anything. He was over everything else. When nothing else was, God was. And the Mesopotamians, they said that anything that exists happens through the conflict between the gods and the cosmos. And that God has to die in order for something to be birthed or whatever. And yet this says, in the beginning, God, and it didn't come as the result of conflict. It came as the result of the peace of God, the shalom of God. Over all of creation, God made it good. God made it perfect. God made it beautiful. And, and part of what made it so beautiful was that God was taking what was chaos and disorder. That's how the, the Hebrews would have been wandering around in the desert. The world had just changed. They just moved where they grew up in. They're surrounded by wilderness. They're like the sea thing, like across the Red Sea. The sea always represented chaos. And so as God creates creation, he's saying, I'm bringing order, I'm bringing function to something that feels very nebulous, something that feels very overwhelming, something that causes an anxiety we don't know, can we trust in this God? And God says, I'm over all of that. Over all the chaos in your life, I'm sovereign over that. I've created it, I've ordered it, I can order a new creation. I can bring function to that. And so where we stopped off last week was just the first like two verses of Genesis. But what happens then is God goes through creation. And if you follow it and think about this, that God creates function and he creates order. So he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the sky and the, and the land make sense and and I'm going to create stars, and it's going to make sense. It's going to be helpful. It's going to have a function. And he's going to create the birds and the fish, and all according to their kind, all according to their kind, according to their kind. He calls it good. He says, I'm going to create the animals of the, of the land according to their kind, and it's going to be good. But then it's almost like the tone from Moses shifts in verse 26. That's where we're going to be today, 26. And this is what happens. God gets to where he creates mankind. And the tone shifts. This is what Moses says. He says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And what these two verses do is they set for us a radical piece of Christian doctrine that impacts the way that Christians view the world, the way that Christians view 
other people, the way that we view ourselves, and it's the Christian doctrine of, of the being made in the image of God. When you pull the Hebrew language into the Greek, often they would call that the imago Dei, being made in the image of God, and it impacts so much of how we live our lives. It's this significant doctrine. Now, one of the reasons we call it really significant is because it impacts everything, but I want you to look in the text itself, because whenever Hebrews wanted to uh, make something important in the text, they would repeat it like over again. They would have it in couplets, or in this case, triplets, because he repeats it three times. Listen to what he says. Let us make mankind in our image, verse 26, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. What does that even mean, to be made in the image of God? How do we understand that? Well, it seems as we progress through Genesis chapter 1, at the very least, Moses is telling us that when God created mankind, he didn't just create another animal. There, that mankind is completely unique from the rest of creation. No one else in creation, God doesn't say I created the angels in the image of God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say I created, you know, mammals in the image of God. He doesn't say that. He says he created mankind in our image. And, and unlike the animals, we are actually created to reflect the character qualities of God. Now, theologians talk about the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes of God are those things like his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, all the omnis. Like, I'm not all-powerful. If I was all-powerful, I'd have tacos whenever I wanted them, right? I'm not. Uh, we can't be those things, but then there are the communicable things. And these are things that every single human being across the planet can somehow reflect. So these would be things like kindness and love and generosity and anger and wrath and jealousy. We can all reflect those. Those are all character qualities of God. Uh, that's what God said. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that inside humankind and they're going to reflect that it's interesting god creates order in genesis 1 all the way through 1 through 26 where we're at and then he says i'm going to actually give jobs to mankind and we could spend a whole sermon series developing a robust doctrine of our work but i want you to see this just just off the off the top here that god creates a job for mankind to do and it was not after the fall it was not when sin entered the picture they were given something to do. It's like our work is good because we're taking disorder and just like God created function out of the chaos, we get to step into our world and bring order to an unruly classroom. We get to take electrical components and put it together and now the house has lights. Like that's a part of what we get to reflect as image bearers of God. It's fascinating. But what I want to do, we're not going to hang out there, but what I want to do is I want to take it kind of out of the clouds and bring it down to where we live because it's this lofty thought. And so what I want to do is just present a statement and then I want to unpack that statement the rest of our time together. How do we understand the image of God? How do we understand the Nago Day? Well, it's a unique feature, not an achievement, through which mankind reflects and represents the characters and qualities of God. All right, let's unpack that. It's a, it's a big statement. First, it's a feature. It's, it's not an achievement. The Bible would say, listen, that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what class, where you grew up on one side of the tracks or the other, no matter how low you've gone, no matter how high you've gone, no matter what you've done in your life, it doesn't matter how low you've gone, every human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, there is a rock-solid, objective, irreducible glory about you and about every person that you meet. 
Why is this so critical in our culture? Timothy Keller, he's a pastor that passed away this last year. Uh, He tells the story of one of his congregants who was studying to be a doctor in New York City. And so he was doing some rotations as a resident in a learning hospital. And this group of doctors was working with this woman who had a particularly bad case of depression. And the, 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 the doctor that's going to be trained, he, he, had a, he was a Christian, he was a believer, and he said, well, you know, one thing that we can do that doesn't require any medicine is that we can just look at this woman and we can say, she has value, she has worth, she has dignity as a human being. And the teaching doctor just snapped and said, well, how do you know that? And everyone laughed and thought it was funny, but he was being serious. He said, how, how do you know that? We're scientists. Science doesn't say that she's more valuable might say that we're more complex, but there's absolutely no scientific basis for saying that you have dignity and worth and value. He says, come on, let's not push our quasi-religious viewpoints on somebody else. And you got to give it to him. He's at least being consistent with his worldview. There absolutely is no scientific basis for saying that human beings have rights and dignity and value. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he's a famous chief justice intellect from the 20th century, he said this. He said, scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance, uh, a significant different in significance, different in kind, excuse me, a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. More complex, absolutely. But not more significant, because listen, nature kills us like it kills everything else. And so it's confusing because, you know, you'll go into like a therapist and the therapist will tell you, hey, you're worthwhile, you have dignity, you have value. And then the philosophy of secularism says, man, there's no basis for that at all. But listen, we as Christians, we would look at God's word and we would be grounded in that reality. And we would say that God doesn't make junk. God didn't mess up when he made you. You, you are made in the image of God, and it doesn't matter how low you've gone, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter where you're from, you, you are valuable to Him. You are valuable. That is a basis of being made in the image of God, and it's a feature, it's not an achievement. There's a major implication in this, isn't it? And how we interact with people around us on a daily basis, people that we just walk up along in our path. You know, some of us, some of us love to be around people. We love to be, like, put me in a city, put me on the mark train. I love being around people. Not all of us are created that way, right? And so you get around people, you see them in the hallways at school, you're surrounded by them on the metro, you're just, you're just around them, and all of a sudden you start to see, man, they act different, they look different, they smell different. Some of them are acting in ways that you'd find disdainful. And if we're honest, don't we have those times when we're just like, man, Get away from me, you weirdo. Anyone else ever think of that? <laughs> right? It can be something that we're particularly tempted to do, especially as suburbanites, right? Because we can get in our cars, we don't have to see anyone else, we can put on our podcast, we can drive home, we can park in our garage, never see anybody, but no, I have all sorts of social contacts. And you just flip into your phone, and no, you have images you're looking at. That's not a relationship. We can live our lives divorced from other people with this concept of like, get away from me, weirdo. But I want you to hear what James, the brother of Jesus, says. James chapter 3, verse 9. This is what he tells us. He says, with our tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings. Curse them. Did you say them? Say, hey, get lost, weirdo. 
to condemn them. Who have been made in the in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. You know what that means? That means that every person that comes across your path, no matter how different their culture is, how different their language is, how different their smell is, how different their skin color is, you need to treat them with a sacredness and a reverence that they couldn't attain years ago. Some thought maybe you can lose your place. As Christians, man, gosh, we've got to get rid of that like get lost spirit. Like I have to rebuke my own heart when I think that. What? Why, why do we do that? We do that because ultimately we would say we believe this, but we don't. We don't let it invade our heart at the deepest level. This is a radical doctrine. As Christians, we need to treat everybody like they're image bearers of God. And gosh, man, this makes a huge impact on how we see civil rights, on how we see human rights. I mean, where did that idea even come from? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Where did that even start? This idea that every human being has embedded rights regardless of any of of those external things of race, national origin, class, that they can't be trampled on. I mean, where did that actually come from? There's a medieval scholar named Brian Tierney from Cornell University, and all he does is look at, like, books from the last 2,000 years, and he tried to sum up where do we see that actually start to emerge Where did that come from? This is actually one of the most fundamental parts of who we are as a Western society. We would hold this very, very dear, that every person is, is, like, it's the Declaration of Independence. We've coded this into our DNA as a country. All people, this is is something we can see, all people are, are made equal, inalienable rights, right? Where did that come from? And Brian Tierney says that it came from the Bible. It came from and it got into government, to our ethos in Europe, through the church. Here's an example of that taking place. Genesis chapter 9, God's giving uh, order to how the Hebrews were to function and get along with one another. And he's talking about what do you do when someone, like, does something wrong, right? This is what he says. From each human being, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. And listen, why? Why, why, why? For in the image of God has God made mankind. He did not cite some sort of law, 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 whatever. They're made in the image of God. It's a part of who they are. Don't violate that. Don't violate that principle. It's a prerequisite feature in how we determine, uh, how we treat one another. Let's press that a little further. Like, this weekend, you know what tomorrow is? Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So I took some time this weekend and I read a couple of his sermons. He was a powerful Christian pastor and preacher. He believed in Jesus. He would be a brother of Christ with us. Not only was he a civil rights leader, but I went and I read the American dream and it was so clear that he believed that as a nation, we were built on these kinds of principles. And on that, he argued that there are no gradations of 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 whether, you know, how someone is worth, that, that we are all able to have fellowship with God, that we're all made in His image. And every man from the treble white to the base black has some sort of place in the keyboard of God's kingdom and His family, precisely because we're made in the image of God. But 
what happens in a society that doesn't believe that, that doesn't have that idea of God? If they would say, there's no God, you have to be logically consistent about that. You'd have to say, if there is no God, then we're not made in the image of God, and we've all just kind of evolved here, and it's random. And this is a huge problem in philosophy. They would ask this question. They're wrestling with this. If God's out of the equation, what makes humanity worthy of dignity, of respect, of protecting? And so what they would point to is they'd say, well, listen, if there's not a God, if they're not made in the image of God, then it's their capacities that allow them to be worth protecting. It's their capacities, their achievements. So they have rights because they have the capacity to reason, to be self-conscious, to make moral choices, to know right from wrong, to be able to communicate those things so they have moral agency and they're worthy of protection. They have inalienable rights. This is really the center. This is the bullseye about the conversations our culture is having around issues of the sanctity of life, about abortion. Because there, were, there are those who would say, hey, fetuses in the womb don't have that capacity they can't make choices, they can't reason, they don't have the ability to know right from wrong, they can't live apart from the mother, they don't have these capacities. But listen, that starts to fall apart, and it starts to get dangerous, because I want you to think about this, that the newborn infant doesn't have those capacities either. They don't know right from wrong, they don't, they, they don't, they're not independent from their mom, they can't make moral choices. And furthermore, neither can old senile people. Neither can the person who had an accident with a traumatic brain injury and they're in a vegetative state. Neither can those folks who have intense mental, mental challenges. They don't classify that way either. That's where it starts to fall apart. So if you believe that abortion is all right, that you really can't protect the rights of these people based off of their capacities, if you don't believe in the image of God, how do you ground your view of human rights? got to ground it in their capacities and if they're you can't protect the unborn you can't protect the newly born you can't protect the mentally handicapped you can't protect old people that's being logically consistent and there's like these gradations in how much someone is able to have those capacities so would we say someone is worth more or less if they have more or less of those capacities that was actually the logical end of na nazism in the 30s and the 40s they would say, hey, we've evolved, this is one race, this is another, this race is better than the other one, so therefore it's not only morally permissible, it's actually morally obligated to eliminate those people. That's the logical end of that conversation. But listen, if you go back to the beginning of the Christian church, here's what you see. They were in a world, in the Greek and the Roman thought, and they believed that someone had value when they had capacity. So Aristotle would say, Hey, listen, this race, they're full of emotional people. They should not only be leaders, they should be the slaves. And the Romans would say, hey, we don't want baby girls, so here's what you can do. You can take them outside the city, let them die from exposure. Um, you know, the old, the sick, the, there, was, there, was, there was abortion taking place, there was infanticide taking place, there was lots of poor, there was lots of poverty. That's the world that they grew up in. Infanticide was perfectly legal. The Christians came along and they believed, listen, we're made in God's image. There's this embedded spark of the divine inside each and every person. So that baby that's being abandoned outside the city, we'll take care of them. And when the plague broke out over Rome and everyone's fleeing, do you know who went back in? The, 
Christians did, and they started taking care of them. And when the widows, you know what the Romans would say to the widows? They would say, listen, you've got to get remarried because if you don't get remarried, no one's going to take care of you. And Christians said, no, 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 listen, we'll take care of you. You're made in the image of God. The church, the church did that. But they weren't one-issue people. They weren't one-issue people. I mean, they were champions of the weak. They were champions of the orphans. They were champions of women. And they put the rest of the culture to shame because of how they viewed the fact that they were made in the image of God. It's a feature. It's a feature. It's not a capacity. It's not an achievement. It's always there. It's irreducible. It's embedded. It's inherent. It's incumbent upon anyone else who is a human being. Do you see, do you see how incredibly crucial this is? Because if you believe that we're made in the image of God, here's what happens. The circle of protection starts to expand. But if you believe we're random cells, that we're just animals, that we happen to make it by chance, that this is nothing more than the survival of the fittest, that this is, that, that this is the might makes right, then there's no more moral imperative to take care of anyone. There's no more moral imperative to protect a human life anymore than you would protect a coconut or a baboon. The circle of protection actually starts to get smaller and smaller based off of capacity, off of achievement. Goodness, this is, this is a fundamental doctrine for us. For those people who would say, I'm going to look to God's word to define me and direct me. This is foundational for us. And I just have to ask the question, how would our lives look if we really took this seriously? How would our lives look when we're tempted to pass by the person who smells different, looks different, when we're tempted to say, get out of my way? Because of something that we would look at their capacity, that we would deem capacity is. And what would it look like in Grace Fellowship if we took that seriously? First of all, we would say, hey, listen, abortion is the unjust taking of life. There is just taking of life according to God's word. That would be an unjust taking of life. But you know what else? If we follow James 2, then even those people that have walked through that, who have had that in their past, they've had abortions, we wouldn't treat them like scum. We, we wouldn't demonize them. We wouldn't curse them. We wouldn't condemn them. Because James tells us that that should not be the case for those people who are guided and directed by Christ. So we would say every, every person is made in the image of God, that abortion is wrong, but we're not going to treat people that have had something like that, like they're the enemy, like they're trash. And we wouldn't be single-issue people. We would care about the, the unborn, the newborn, the midborn, the late the child. We would care about folks throughout those stages. We care about the poor and the marginalized. What an unusual community the church would be. And when people would peer around the edge of this thing called Christian community, according to Jesus, they would look at that and they would say, we will know that you are followers by how you love. How you love and how you reflect and how... So the Imago Dei, back to our statement, is this unique feature. It's a feature. It's not an achievement through which mankind 
reflects and represents the character qualities of God. So what does that mean to reflect the character qualities of God? When I was growing up, I enjoyed going uh, backpacking, going on some backpacking trips, and they would have, um, they'd have folks that would teach you skills of the, you know, of the backwoods, about how to survive. And so there was, there was someone there that would, even on a cold winter's day when the sun was out, they would take a mirror, a mirror not unlike something maybe, maybe like this that was concave, and they would take the reflection of the sun and they would focus it on this tinder pile and be able to start a fire. And through that fire, it brought warmth. They were able to cook food. It, it, it created a space for us to kind of like have this feeling of protection. That all happened when it, when it was reflecting the sun somewhere else. That's this, that's this picture. I think that's what's taking place when we're called to be the image of God. God is saying, listen, I want you to reflect me. My character qualities, my heart, how I fear, feel about other people, how I feel about the creation that I've created and I've called it good. And I'm giving you a job to take care of it, not to abuse it, not to trash it, but you need to be a good steward of that. Are you reflecting my heart and my mind to the people around you? And when you align to me, when you face me, that glory is going to bounce off of you and it's going to hit other people in such a way that it's going to be life-giving, that it's going to be productive, that it's going to be bringing order instead of chaos into their world. Because there's just some people in your life that when they get around you, it just has a way of creating chaos all the time. You know a person like that? Yeah, like if you're, if you're reflecting the image of God, you're going to say, how can I bring God's qualities and characters to this relationship? And it's going to bring life and it's going to bring order. And if we're made to reflect the qualities of God, if we're made to do that, you know what that means? It means that this mirror cannot create the light itself. That there's something outside of the mirror. It's not within itself. It's something outside of it that it's able to reflect that glory, that gives it its weight, that gives its importance. The word glory in the uh, Old Testament comes from the Greek word, or excuse me, the Hebrew word kabod. Kabod, and it simply means the weightiness and importance of. That's what the glory means. And when we're made to reflect the glory of God, it means we can't produce that in ourselves. We are dependent on something outside of us to give that sense of importance. And if we, if we like just kind of go with the flow of the philosophy of secularism around us and we would say you know what there is no God I don't care what God says about me and I don't care what other people think about me I just need to think that I'm significant that's like a mirror trying to light itself it doesn't work it can't work that's not how we're created to be we're made to be in the image of God we're made to reflect and listen we're going to be most alive when we align ourselves to him when we face him, when we look to him. And listen, if you don't do that, if you don't face God, if you don't face his love, if you don't turn to that for your sense of significance and beauty and worth, then you're going to have to turn to something else because we are made to reflect. You're going to have to turn to something else. And so you're going to turn to another human being, to your family, to your job. You're going to turn to human improve, uh, hum, other human approval or to professional success. 
You're going to have to get your significance from something outside of yourself. And if you're able, if you're able to know in your soul that when you face God and you align yourself to him, that he is the source of my value and my significance because I'm in alignment with me. He loves me. I'm made in his image. And then what that means is that when I'm actually in a relationship with another person, I'm free to actually love them and not just use them for my own glory. You're free to actually love the person because you're, you're looking at them and you're saying, of course I love you. Of course I want you to love me back. But even if you don't, even if you can't, even if you won't, even if it's insufficient or not up to my standards, that doesn't define me anyway. Because you're actually facing your whole soul Towards that person instead of God. If you're trying to get your significance from that person, from them loving you, here's what you're going to do. You're going to crush them. Because you're putting all of the weight, all of the kabod, all of that glory upon them, and they will never need to get that. Moms and dads, do we put the weight of our glory on our children? have to behave perfectly they have to achieve perfectly they have to get that star role in the play they have to be the starter on the football team they had better act up when they're you know not act up when they're in public because they're a reflection of me you're gonna crush them and if you're married to someone and they have to be the source of your significance and your value because they worship the ground that you walk on you're going to crush them. The other thing is it's going to devastate you. You'll never be able to tell anybody the truth. I can't tell them the truth about their fallenness because then they'll be unhappy with me. And so it's like this codependency thing, and it means you're going to be a lousy friend. You're going to be a lousy spouse because guess what? They need to hear the truth. God says, listen, if you, if you would face me, if you would believe in me, if you would see that I am the source of your glory, if you would image me, then this is what it means. It means you're going to be able to serve other people selflessly without needing their praise. Why? Because you're approved of by the living God and the person next to you. And so you're able then to go about your work. And you're able to work diligently at something. And you're able to have joy in what you work in. And when it doesn't go well, when you don't perform at the highest levels, when you have a downturn, when you have layoffs, you can say, man, this stinks. This is unfortunate. But you know what? That's okay. Because this doesn't define me anyway. My family and I have been watching The Voice the last, I don't know, two weeks or something. You know, we're at episode 21 or something like that, right? And so every time there's, they're, they're like there with the person and they've just competed and they've just sang and Carson Daly goes, all right, what would it mean for you if, uh, if you got voted on to the next round? And the person invariably says, oh, this would mean everything to me. This is, I, this, is, this is who I am. This is what I've got to do. And I just thought to myself, I would be so shocked if someone got up and said, well, you know, I really want this. This would be great. But if it doesn't happen, I'm going to be okay because this doesn't define me. 
I would vote for that person right there just for saying that. It would be amazing, right? Yet we look to these things to define us, to give us glory, to give us weight. And I've got to be the best. I've got to be the most. They've got to think of me this way. It's a weight that will crush them and it will crush you. And we keep messing up about this. We keep getting it wrong. And we can never get it right. Throughout the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is saying, listen, you're going to turn to the ability to govern yourself. You're going to turn to your ability to have a king. And if a king will get that right, you're going to try through following the rules. That glory will never satisfy your soul. And so what does God do? Listen, I want you to hear what God did. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says this. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God. It's the word icon. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know what that means? It means that Jesus is the only perfect image of God. It means that if we gaze on the image of Christ, if I, if I look to him, it fixes the image inside of me. As I look to let my life be guided and di directed by Christ, and listen, it's hard and I don't understand everything, but I understand some of it, and I'm going to align myself to that, and I'm going to say, how did Jesus tell me to treat someone when they're being unkind to someone? I now start to reflect that glory, and it starts to replace in me this image-breaking nature that I naturally have. And as I align myself to that, when I gaze on the image of Christ, when I look at this unbelievable reality that Christ gave himself up voluntarily to suffer on the cross and die for the sins that I deserve. And that when God looks at me, he does not see my past. He does not see my mistakes. He doesn't see my sin. He sees the perfect obedience of Christ. You know what that means? It means that if God can forgive me because of what Jesus did, then I can forgive myself. That I can walk past what happened towards what God says is true about me in Jesus. I can define myself by what God says about me and not by what the world says about me. I can define my sexuality by what God defines about my sexuality and my gender and not by the world that says, hey, how that is is quite broken and wrong and you need to change it. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Pray for me and come because we're going to talk about that next week. The more I center on him, the more I image on him, the less I trample the image of God in myself and other people. The Imago Dei, here's the statement, is the unique feature given by God to all of mankind, not by our capacity, not by our achievement, so that we'll be able to reflect his character and his qualities. And that's what we're called in to do. How would your life look different if you started walking that way? How would this church look like if we started walking that way? Not one issue people, not just pounding the pulpit about abortion, but standing for life in all of its forms. What would that look like? Let me tell you, church, you are made in the image of God. You're made to reflect his glory through your life. Let me pray for you. And then we're going to just respond with a heart of worship, okay? Let me pray. God, uh, thank you. This is hard. This is hard stuff. Help us to think about the implications of this beautiful, this weighty, this kind of life-changing reality that we are made to reflect your glory. How often, oh God, I mess up doing that. God, I just, I just confess that. 
I confess that often enough I'm the person that has like the um, leave me alone, <laughs> like like the get lost mentality and heart. It's true of me and my and my fallenness. But I, I confess that I don't look to you for my significance. I often will look to ministry. I'll often look to what I can accomplish with my hands. I can often look to relationships for my significance. God, would you heal us as we look to your son dying on the cross? Would we see your glory in such a way that our hearts are healed, that the image is fixed? God, would you heal my heart and help us to honor others and see them the way that you see them? Help us to be a church that understands that and lives that out. Because of Jesus, we pray. Because of what he's done for us, we're able to come to you. Praise you, God. We pray this in your name.